We're on the eighth miracle, the resurrection, in this book uh, of, by the, go- the Gospel of John. We've looked at the first seven miracles and uh, this eighth miracle of the resurrection. And then John says, hey, I've included these specific eight miracles so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and in his name find life. And so hopefully I can tie this all together um, tonight and uh, we can prepare for communion. Let's ask for God's help in, in looking at his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. God, we thank you for the privilege it is to have them, to be able to have multiple copies, to be able to keep them in our office, in our home, in our cars, to carry them around. Lord, uh, I pray that you would speak to us tonight through your word. May your Holy Spirit remind us of your love, instruct us in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a family who had three sons. The mom and the dad of these three children were very systematic in their approach to parenting. They used a system of rewards and consequences to try to bring out the best in their kids. The rules were very straightforward. They had ten of them. Obey right away, all the way. No fighting with siblings. No talking back to your parents. No foul language. Keep your rooms clean. Do your designated chores. Do all your homework before going to play. Be respectful to all adults. No complaining complaining or whining. That's my favorite of the ten rules. And tell the truth at all times. Pretty simple. If the kids obeyed, they they were rewarded with approval and extra privileges. If they fell short, they were withheld both approval and privilege and received the consequence appropriate to their transgressions. The parents were extremely consistent in this system of parenting. When the kids followed the ten rules, they were rewarded with extra privileges and shown good encouragement. If the kids didn't follow the ten household rules, they were given instructions to work harder and they missed out on the rewards and compliments. The oldest son worked very, very hard to keep the rules. And more often than not, he did. And so he had often had extra TV time, a few more dollars worth of allowance, and got a lot of that of boys from his mom and dad. This made son number one feel pretty good about himself. Over time, he excelled in keeping the 10 rules. He became a bit prideful maybe a little self-righteous as he looked down at his other two brothers who couldn't keep the rules as good as he did. Mom and dad loves me best, he would sometimes taunt them. And he would often flaunt his privileges when his parents weren't looking. Son number two tried extremely hard to keep all the rules, but he really was able to keep them all at any given time. He was much more passionate about some things and not passionate at all about other things, And so he would often find himself fighting with his siblings or forgetting to do his chores or his homework before going to play. And so he also, to make up for this, uh, would find himself lying to make up for his inability to follow the rules. His constant getting close to keeping the rules but then eventually falling short of them caused him to feel like a failure, caused him to resent his older brother who kept the rules better than he did third son simply resigned himself to being incapable of keeping all the rules all the time. 
And so he just lived however he wanted and let the chips fall as they may. He hungered for his parents' approval, but he didn't even try to go after it. Because he knew he could never keep all the rules. As the three sons got old, grew older, the system of rewards and consequences were ingrained in their being. For the oldest, he had become a master at following the rules to a T, but he was growing to be quite a smug, unhappy young man whose arrogance and disdain for others was easily noticeable from afar. The second son grew up to, be, to have a terrible self-esteem. He always felt inferior, never felt like he measured up, always aware of his shortcomings, but he kept trying and striving for those privileges and approval. The third son grew up to be very disillusioned. In fact, he ran away from home and rebelled completely. What was the point, he wondered? Why stay pinned down by a system I could never live up to? This, you probably have guessed, is a fictitious story. A parable, a parable that, that maybe Jesus might have told if the family culture and dynamics back in the first century AD was like ours. And as I thought of this parable, I wondered if Jesus had told this parable in it, he probably would have ended it with one of those penetrating questions that made his listeners apply the parable. What would, that par what would that question be? Well, I think if, if Jesus would have told the parable, he would have, his listeners would have got it, that the ten rules were the laws of Moses, the laws of the Old Testament, as we would call them. And the parents represented our Heavenly Father. And I think I know what the question would be. I've heard it before on Jesus' lips. He would say something like, which of the three sons were justified before the Father? What would the answer be? Any guesses? Very smart man. Let's make him an elder. Oh, he just got off the elder board. The answer would be none of them. Son number one followed the rules outwardly, but inwardly his abundance of pride and lack of compassion would have completely disqualified him from ever measuring up to the father's standard. Likewise, son two and three never would come close to measuring up. This parable has some obvious limitations, but I thought it helped us to see Jesus' approach to finding, uh, see how Jesus' approach to finding privilege and approval in God was completely different than the religious systems, the religious construct that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had built up around the Old Testament law. In our parable, can you see if you said to the older son, son number one, no, 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 following the rules like that doesn't mean a thing to your parents. If inwardly your desires, your motives, your heart is impure, you'd have one angry son ready to argue and fight with you. What if you said to him and to anyone else, hey, I know the rules, I, I know what they say, I know... Rule, rule number two is don't fight with your siblings. But I say, don't fight with your siblings and pray for them. I know the rules say do your chores, but I say help others also when they can't get their chores done. 
I know what the rules say, don't complain or whine, but I say encourage and empower those who struggle with their circumstances. See, if you tried to dismantle or tweak the parenting structure of son number one, he would become very disturbed, very irate, because that's his power base. He has control based on how well he follows the rules. That's where he gets his approval, that's where he gets his status. So don't tweak it, don't touch it. That's why Jesus had such a hard time with the Pharisees. And that is one of the reasons why they crucified him. Because he dismantled the law as a mechanism to win God's approval. These characters, these sons, their struggle with following the rules is essentially the main gist of the Gospel of John. So with that, hopefully you'll see in a second, with that as the background, let's look at 1 John 1, and we'll just look at 10 through 12. Or maybe I'll go to 13. 1 John 1, 10 through 12. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, see, they didn't get it. They were stuck in the paradigm of the law. And they couldn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children of God, but were not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. Since we started this miracle series, we've analyzed seven different miracles that John chooses to help us believe in Jesus as Messiah. In each of the seven, there's this battle that we're... The, the three sons represent various characters who Jesus come, come into contact with. And there's this tension, this battle between belief and the law. Belief and the law. I just want to quickly run through and, and, and show you how this is so. Remember the first miracle we kicked off in June was uh, Jesus turned water into wine. Mary had strong belief, okay? Her belief was unshaken that Jesus is the Christ and can do anything. In fact, it's her strong belief that cajoles Jesus into action. Jesus is a woman. It, it maybe doesn't that carry that strong of a sense. Or, you know, it's much more polite than if we had said that today. But, but woman, it's not my time yet. And Mary says, come on, attendants, do whatever he says. And Jesus does this thing that shows the tension between belief and law a little bit. Her strong belief... Jesus takes the cleansing pots, the, the pots of water were, that were dumped out on guests' hands to make them ceremonial clean and have access to the, to, the, um, to the banquet. He takes those cleansing ritual vessels and he makes wine. Not just regular old wine, great wine. In fact, when the head of the banquet tastes it, he says, wow. You saved the best until now. And it's a symbolism of how God is taking the, the law and he's doing something different. He's fulfilling it in a way that's not based on man trying to do stuff, but by God graciously lavishing his mercy, his love on us. And that wine is a foreshadowing of the wine we will, we will partake of tonight. Miracle number two, the healing of the official son. 
Look quick with me at John chapter 4. Turn a couple pages. John chapter 4, verses 48 through 53. Jesus starts off in verse 48 saying, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. So Jesus is saying, hey, unless I show off, you're not gonna, you don't have the faith, you don't have the belief. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man takes a step towards belief. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servant met him with the news that the boy was living. He inquired as to the time when his son got better. They said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. Believed not on their own, but believed because they saw Jesus' miracle. They didn't quite have the faith of Mary who believed before the miracle. Maybe half-hearted belief is a good way to characterize this. Miracle number three, another law and belief tension. Healing of the paralytic at the pool. This man doesn't show any shred of evidence that he believes. No faith at all. Reverend Schoenger, I remember, preached on this. But Jesus heals him anyways. In fact, Jesus says, do you want to get well? And the guy doesn't say yes. He just starts complaining about why he can't get to the pool. Jesus heals him on the spot. And what does he do? He doesn't show any faith in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. But he reverts back to the law. He hooks up with the religious leaders Let's them know it was Jesus that healed him on the Sabbath. Jesus that broke the ten rules and goes back living under the law. Jesus finds him and says, you better watch it. And he warns him. Miracle number four. Miracle number four, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and it's really a miracle of a belief barometer. Look at verse chapter 6. Turn a couple bit to chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. When Jesus looked up and saw a great cr crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? This is not really fair. He asked this only to test them, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. He's trying to gauge their belief. Do they believe that he is the Christ? Philip answers, eight months wages wouldn't be enough um, wouldn't buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? He's gauging their belief. And then he does this miracle. And it says that the people become so enthralled with him because they fed him out of nothing that they want to make him king. Belief for selfish motives. The next miracle, miracle number five, Jesus walks on water. Look at chapter 6, verse 19 through 21 with me. When Jesus had th rode three, I mean, when they, the disciples, had rode three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. Why were they terrified? Because they didn't have it in their belief capacity that Jesus could walk on water. They hadn't fully believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, who can do all things because he is God. And so they're terrified. But verse 20 says, but he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. Then, only then were they willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Miracle number six, and this is my all-time favorite miracle in the Bible. Sorry, this thing keeps slipping. 
I get those Irish ears that hate any form of technology. Miracle number six, the man born, born blind. He was blind from birth. And this is one of my favorite stories in that the man's healed, but Jesus slips away before he gets to see him. He, he tells the man to go wash, and when he washes, Jesus isn't around. He doesn't, he doesn't know Jesus. He just knows his voice, but he believes. And as, again, it's on the Sabbath, so he gets hauled into the, the religious leader's office and said, all right, tell us the scoop. And he tells him the story, and his belief grows as he tells the story. And as the tension between belief and law mounts, the Pharisees get angry, the religious leaders get angry at him and say, you call Jesus a sinner. And the man's like, how can I call Jesus a sinner? He just healed me. I was born blind. That has never happened that a man born blind has received their sight. And he schools the religious leaders. And the tension between belief and law in the earthly realm, law wins out and they excommunicate the guy. They kick him out of the temple. But in the spiritual realm, belief wins out. And this man runs into Jesus. Jesus seeks him out, and he worships him. And then Jesus concludes with this. Um, chapter 9, verse 39 through 41. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus says, hey, you know what you're doing. You've seen my miracles. But you can't break out of your rules system, your rules constraint. You're, you stand condemned based on your own words. And then finally, we have the seventh miracle that Reverend Sheringa preached a few weeks ago. And here we have everybody has a certain level of belief in Jesus. They believe he can heal Lazarus. And so Lazarus is, is sick. I think this is in chapter 11. We won't look at a specific verse, but Lazarus is sick. He is a, on death's door. They send for Jesus. Jesus hangs out for a little while. Lazarus dies. He's dead for four days. Jesus reaches the village. Martha comes out and says, Oh, Jesus, if you were only here, you could have saved him. So there's a level of belief. Mary comes down, Rabbi, if you were only here, you could have saved him. And Jesus, what, weeps. Sometimes I wonder, is he weeping because he loved Lazarus and he sees their emotion? Or is he weeping because their faith in him is only this big? And he says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And he calls Lazarus out. And Lazarus is resurrected from the dead. And many people put their faith in him. And it planted the seeds in the Pharisees' minds to go after him. And they arrest him and they crucify him. And they lay him in a tomb. And that's where our miracle leaves us. Let me read to you John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb 
and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed, but he didn't, they didn't believe yet that Jesus was resurrected. Look at the next verse, verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood, Mary Magdalene stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary believed that Jesus was someone special, sent from God, maybe a prophet, I don't know. But she didn't fully believe that she was the Christ. He was the Christ, the resurrection and the life until he heard her as her Lord, as her friend, call her by name, Mary. When she heard the voice of the Lord, she believed and was filled with joy, life-changing joy. With the resurrection, we have proof that Jesus is the Christ. And belief in him allows us to become children of God, born of the Spirit. And it's the Spirit's job to impart Christ to us. Colossians 1.27 says, It is Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. Because of the resurrection, we now have Christ in us. The, The Lord's Supper can take on great meaning. Yes, we can use it as a reflection on our forgiveness for sin. Jesus died on the cross for our sin, but he now reigns both physically in heaven and spiritually within us. So as we take the bread and the cup, let's reflect that while it's not the actual body and blood of Christ, Christ is present in these sacraments, in these elements. And as you take the bread and take the cup and literally eat the bread and drink the cup, may it be a reminder to you and may you celebrate the fact that Christ is in you because of the miracle of the resurrection. We are children of God, not born by two parents' decision. Not born by the will of man, but born by the Spirit of God. May we praise God for this privilege as we receive this Lord's Supper.